Oh, yeah, sustainable development. I'm all in. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Brian Sussman here. Brian Sussman Show, Faith, Family, Freedom. This is episode 192. It's a follow-up to yesterday's episode 191. And in that episode, which, by the way, was entitled Designed to Control You, New Government Energy Regulations, we started talking about sustainable development. And I'm going to pick up that theme today because this is a term you hear over and over and over, and it sounds on the surface so reasonable. But in reality, it's not reasonable at all. Again, as I mentioned yesterday, ask several friends what comes to mind when they think of sustainable development, and you get just as many answers. Recycling, solar and wind, no more fossil fuels, organic farming, electric cars, protect nature, yada, 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 yada. But if you ask people to understand the design meaning behind the phrase, the answers are significantly more refined. You'll get terms like equity thrown at you, social justice. And at first you think, well, equity, I think, I think I'm for that. And social justice, who, of course. End of capitalism. Meeting the needs of the present without compromising the future. Those are things that some would, would probably respond with if they've majored in environmental science in the last 10 years. You see, recycling, solar, wind, no more fossil fuels, those are the fruits of sustainable development. But the latter, equity, social justice, end of capitalism, those, those are the literal intentions. See, climate change is an illness, according to the left. It's an illness brought about, it's, a, it's, a, it's an atmospheric illness brought about by greed, development, profit, and even American liberty. Sustainable development is the antidote. So in other words, climate change is the problem, but sustainable development is the answer. Because sustainable development is all about climate change, and sustainable development is all about equity, social justice, and the end of capitalism. Sustainable development to those who are learned and understand the concept, it promises to right the perceived wrongs. It will determine fairness. It will force a philosophical transformation of society. And it's a long-suffering plan birthed in the bowels of the United Nations. Now, we could talk a lot about the United Nations, and I could, I could talk a lot about it because I've written a ton about it, but the United Nations is a do-nothing organization. Their primary goals are to maintain peace and security, and how have they done regarding that since 1945 when they were founded in San Francisco? <laughs> They've never stopped a war, let alone prevented one. A quarter of the countries represented at the UN are essentially dictatorships. Some of them even sit on the UN Human Rights Council. As of this writing, um, as of this recording, I should say, Russia continues to attack Ukraine. What has the United Nations done? <laughs> Nothing. 
Oh, their secretary general said this. I have only one thing to say from the bottom of my heart. President Putin, stop your troops from attacking Ukraine. Give peace a chance. (laughs) That's laughable. That give peace a chance. You get a quote line from John Lennon. It's the best you can do, United Nations? Yes, that's the best they can do. You know, the United Nations Charter is like self-satire. Their organizational objectives double as punchlines. It's, it's pretty amazing, the United Nations. But boy, when it comes to drafting climate policy, whoo! They are the best! And it goes way, way back. It goes way, way back. Uh, sustainable development. They didn't first use the term sustainable development. That was rolled out later. Basically, let me see. If you, if you look at the roots of sustainable development from the United Nations, it goes back to 1976, six years after the first Earth Day. They had a conference on human settlements. It's called Habitat One. Now, remember, the left and the United Nations, they worked very, very patiently. The term sustainable development hadn't been dropped at this point yet. But Habitat One was all about land, private land ownership. The United Nations believes, just like Karl Marx believed, private land ownership should be outlawed. Listen to the preamble from Habitat One. Land cannot be treated as an ordinary asset, controlled by individuals and subject to the pressures and inefficiencies of the market. Private land ownership is also a principal principal instrument of accumulation and concentrated wealth and therefore contributes to social injustice. If unchecked, it may become a major obstacle in the planning and implementation of development schemes. Public control of land is therefore indispensable. So let me just underscore some of what I just read to you. Private land ownership contributes to social injustice. Well, if we want social justice, we have to get rid of private land ownership. If unchecked, it may become a major obstacle in the planning and implementation of developmental schemes. This is just like uh, communist regimes the world over. First thing they do, get rid of private land ownership. Could become a major obstacle in our plans. I was in Bulgaria. I shared some podcasts on this months ago, but I was in Bulgaria, as as I mentioned in past podcasts, visiting friends and speaking at a church in Sofia, Bulgaria. Bulgarian people, wonderful. Man, have they just been ransacked over the years, over the over the years, over the over the centuries, and yet their people group, their distinct people group, is held together. They're just they're amazing people. But their country was most decimated by Soviet occupation after World War II, continuing until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. So basically from 1944 to 1991, they were taken over by the communists. And everywhere you look, there are large, ugly apartment buildings all over Bulgaria. It's the same with all the Eastern Bloc states. Stack and pack housing, built and formerly owned by the communist regime. You see, the Soviets had a plan very much like what the UN agreed to in Habitat One, which, by the way, also included a declaration stating that adequate shelter and services are a basic human right. So 
Keep that in mind for just a moment. In 1944, when the Balkan region of Europe fell into the hands of Russia, all communist opposition first was violently eliminated. Violently eliminated. All, all aspects of social life, culture, the education system turned into tools of communist propaganda. Unreliable teachers from universities and schools were purged. Religious education, of course, banned. Russian language classes became obligatory. All publishing was controlled by the state. Censorship was introduced to rewrite history. Any contact with the free world was forbidden. But amongst the highest priorities for the communists was land and personal property. Farms were seized by the state. Estates were impounded. All private industry and commerce was taken over. But, oh, the communists would boast, the rent was free, as was the electricity and heating. Never mind the fact that the apartment buildings were in constant disrepair and the energy supplied by the government was irregular. Yeah, but who cares, right? You know, that, that, that's all doable, right? Plumbing backed up, elevators non-existent, surveillance state, life discouraged outside of the city, movement and associations easily tracked. But it was a good life. It was a better world. There was no injustice. Everyone was equal. There was little crime. That's, that's, that's basically what the UN has for us. That's basically, my friends, what the World Economic Forum, who, who now gives the UN a little mojo, wants for us. That's what the liberals and progressives and socialists and communists want for us. Oh, trust me, they'll be above the fray. The elites, the elites running the show will, will remain to live above the fray. They'll, they'll have their mansions, and they'll have their, their helicopters, and they'll have their combustion engines, and they'll have everything else that goes along with their riches. But the rest of us, it's because we can't be trusted. We need to be controlled. And behavior in the Soviet Union was easily controlled. And everyone was on the same footing except for the elite leadership and their exclusive accomplices. And the people, eh, they'd be pacified with sports and television and vodka. But you know, it's been more than 30 years since communism miserably failed in Eastern Europe. And yet the stench of that creed still smolders. So that preamble I read from Habitat One, it may as well have been cut and paste from the Communist Manifesto. Because there's something that the Communist Manifesto says right up front. Karl Marx, Frederick Engels said this, The theory of communists may be summed up in a single sentence, the abolition of private property. You see, private land ownership contributes to social injustice. Oh, wait a second. Those aren't my words. That comes right from the United Nations. <laughs> what a scheme it is. So again, the United Nations at this point hasn't rolled out the term sustainable development. That would come in 1987. An Orwellian-like expression that was generally unfamiliar at the time, sustainable development, came out in something called the Brundtland Report, also referred to as Our Common Future. It's the term sustainability, sustainable development. 
you look at all the literature on sustainable development taught in our American universities and schools, and they'll all point back to the Brundtland Report and our common future. It's like manna from heaven. It's like, like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai to these people. And, and by the way, it wasn't just sustainable development that was brought forward at this 1987 United Nations conference. Uh, it was also new terminology. The earth was renamed biosphere. Compelled transfer of wealth became economic growth. Energy rationing was called lifestyle adjustment. Let me read a few more things. This is mesmeric language from our common future defining sustainable development. The concept of sustainable development does not imply limits. Not absolute limits, but limitations imposed by the present state of technology on social organization, on environmental resources, and by the ability of the biosphere to absorb the effects of human activities. Sustainable development requires meeting the basic needs of all and extending to all the opportunity to fulfill their aspirations for a better life. Okay, that's one. So you just, you just hear, hey, no absolute limits. Oh, cool, I love that. Meeting the basic needs of all. Woohoo! Fulfilling the aspirations for a better life. Okay, here's the next point. Meeting essential needs requires not only a new era of economic growth for nations, but an assurance that the poor get their fair share. Woo, man. Vote for me, I'll set you free. Next. Sustainable development requires that those who are more affluent adopt lifestyles within the planet's ecological means and their use of energy, for example. You see, my friends, sustainable development, it's far more than recycling cans and bottles and cardboard, eating tofu, driving a Tesla. That's all glitter. Sustainable development is the practical application of communist theory with a hook, the environment. It's the kind of stuff that Marx and his early disciples only dreamed of. And notice the rhapsodic attributes expressed in the plan that I just mentioned. I'm just going to go through five of them right now. Meeting the basic needs of all. The opportunity to fulfill aspirations for a better life. A new era of economic growth for the nations. Those poor get their fair share. Adopt lifestyles within the planet's ecological means. Can, can we just stop for a second here, friends, please? Because you're listening to this. You're, you're a person who has a, 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 an insatiable appetite for the truth. You want the truth. This stuff, this stuff that I just mentioned, meeting the needs of all, new economic growth for the nations, poor get their fair share, this is the kind of talk associated with charlatans, snake oil salesmen, desperate politicians. But it's interesting because this document that I'm reading from, from 1987, Our Common Future, the United Nations, the document then declares an enemy. Finally, there's an enemy. And this is an enemy that no one has actually ever seen. You ready? Carbon dioxide. 
our common future officially introduced carbon dioxide as not only the cause of global warming, which would eventually be called climate change, it was the cause of global, CO2 was the cause of global warming in this document, a threat to world peace and an agent of economic inequality. I'm not making this up. I'll close with these points. This is right from the document. With the exception of CO2, air pollutants can be removed from fossil fuel combustion processes at costs usually below the cost of damage caused by pollution. However, the risks of global warming make heavy future reliance upon fossil fuels problematic. This is 1987. Joe Biden's outlawing combustion vehicles. States are getting rid of natural gas stoves. We talked about this yesterday. This is an absolute joke. Next point. All nations may suffer. Did you hear that? All nations may suffer from the releases by industrialized countries of carbon dioxide and of gases that react with the ozone layer. This ozone layer thing's just been so debunked so far long ago. But I continue. And from and now, look, let me continue. I need to start over with this. All nations may suffer from the releases by industrialized countries of carbon dioxide and of gases that react with the ozone layer and from any future war fought with nuclear arsenals controlled by those nations. So they've jumped from CO2 to nuclear bombs. All nations will also have a role to play in securing peace, in changing trends, and in writing an international writing... R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, writing an international economic system that increases rather than decreases inequality, that increases rather than decreases the number of poor and hungry. This is such Marxist fill-in-the-blank. These faceless United Nations bureaucrats who crafted our common future well, we're hopeful in 1987 that this new prod would be their most effective instrument yet to bring about global society and political change. The key, of course, would be getting the United States to go on board because just as in a war or even in a bar fight, once the biggest guy goes down, a winner is born. And that's what they've been doing ever since 1987. And we've had so few politicians who've stood up against this. I think there's, there's finally one person, such an unlikely candidate, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. This guy was an environmentalist attorney. But he's finally seen through the mush, and he understands this is an agenda to, I, I don't think he's actually said the words communism. Maybe he has. But he knows this is, this is uh, uh, an agenda to destroy capitalism. Another guy who saw it a long time ago was Patrick Moore, the former co-founder of Greenpeace. There have been some unlikely candidates who have seen through all of this. But by and large, most American politicians, even on the Republican side of the aisle, have been completely silent on this. Oh, there have been a few voices here and there. This is a big issue. It, from my perspective, this is the issue of our day. And that's why I'm talking about it right here. And that's why I appreciate you for listening right here. BrianSussman.com is the website on Facebook. 
Brian Sussman Show. I have a rather humorous post right now because <laughs> it's about puppy dogs and, and uh, puppy dogs and poems. Because anything I write of substance on Facebook is, is immediately squashed, throttled. Oh, it's my wife calling. Time to get off the line. God bless you, my friends. Until next time.